Okay, so Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I'm going to try to get through three more chapters today. Wow, I really bit off more than I could chew with this one. It's interfering with my other projects, but God damn it, I said I'd do it. So I guess I'm going to fucking do it. Paranoid Terror. An awful specter of sodomy, a flashing of knives, and green water. This is chapter 7 of part 1. When I got to the mint, I parked on the street in front of the casino, around a corner from the parking lot. No point in risking a scene in the lobby, I thought. Neither one of us could pass for drunk. We were both hypertense, extremely menacing vibrations all around us. We hurried through the casino and up the rear escalator. We made it to the room without meeting anybody, but the key wouldn't open the door. My attorney was struggling desperately with it. Those bastards have changed the lock on us, he groaned. They probably searched the room. Jesus, we're finished. Suddenly, the door swung open. We hesitated, then hurried inside. No sign of trouble. Bolt everything. Bolt everything, said my attorney. Use all chains. He was starting. He was staring at two mint hotel room keys in his hand. Where did this one come from? He said, holding up a key with the number 1221 on it. That's Lacerda's room, I said. He smiled. Yeah, that's right. I thought we might need it. What for? Let's go up there and blast him out of bed with a fire hose, he said. No, I said. We should leave the poor bastard alone. I get the feeling he's avoiding us for some reason. Don't kid yourself, he said. The Portuguese son of a bitch is dangerous. He's watching us like a hawk. He squinted at me. Have you made the deal with him? I talked with him on the phone, I said, while you were out getting the car washed. He said he was turning in early so he could get out there and to the starting line at dawn. My attorney was not listening. He uttered an anguished cry and smacked the wall with both hands. The dirty bastard, he shouted. I knew it. He got a hold of my woman. I laughed. That little blonde groupie with the film crew? You think he sodomized her? That's right. <laughs> About it, he yelled. You goddamn honkies are all the same. By this time, he's opened a new bottle of tequila and is quaffing it down. Then he grabbed a grapefruit. <laughs> God damn it. Okay, that was not dialogue. By this time, we'd opened a new bottle of tequila and it was quaffing it down. Then he grabbed a grapefruit and sliced it in half with a Gerber Mini Magnum, a stainless steel hunting knife with a blade like a fresh honed straight razor. Where'd you get that knife, I asked. Room service sent it up, he said. I wanted something to cut the limes. What limes? They didn't have any, he said. They don't grow out here in the desert. He sliced the grapefruit into quarters, then into eights, then sixteenths. Then he began slashing aimlessly at the residue. That dirty toad bastard, he groaned. I knew I should have taken him out when I had the chance. Now he has her. I remember the girl. We'd had a problem with her on the elevator a few hours earlier. My attorney had made a fool of himself. <laughs> you must be a writer, she said. What class are you in? Class, he snapped. 
What the fuck do you mean? What do you ride? She asked with a quick smile. We're filming the race for a TV series. Maybe we can use you. Use me? Mother God, I thought, here it comes. The elevator was crowded with race people. It was taking a long time to get from floor to floor. By the time we'd stopped, stopped at three, he was trembling badly. Five more to go. I run the big ones, he shouted suddenly. The really big fuckers. I laughed, trying to defuse the scene. The Vincent Black Shadow, I said. We're with the factory team. This brought, a murmur, <laughs> this brought a murmur of rude dissent from the crowd. Bullshit, somebody finally muttered. Wait a minute, my attorney shouted. And then he, <laughs> and then to the girl. Pardon me, lady, but I think there's some kind of ignorant chicken sucker in this car who needs to get his face cut open. He plunged his hand in his pockets of his black plastic jacket and turned to face the people crowded into the rear of the elevator. Okay, here we go. You cheap honky faggots, he snarled. Which one of you wants to get cut? It was a product of its time. I was watching the overhead floor indicator. The door opened at seven, but nobody moved. Dead silence. The door closed. Up to eight. Then open again. Still no sound of movement in the crowded car. Just as the door began to close, I stepped up and grabbed his arm, jerking him out just in time. The door slid shut and the elevator light dinged nine. Quick into the room, I said. Those bastards will have the pigs on us. We ran wildly around the corner of the room. My attorney was laughing loudly. Spooked, he shouted. Did you see that? They were spooked like rats in a death cage. Then, as we bolted the door behind us, he stopped laughing. God damn, he said. It's serious now. That girl understood. She fell in love with me. <laughs> now many hours later, he was convinced that Lacerda, the so-called photographer, had somehow got his hands on the girl. Let's go up there and castrate that fucker, he said, waving his new knife around in quick circles in front of his teeth. Did you put him on there? Look, I said, you better put the goddamn blade away and get your head straight. I have to put the car in the lock. I was backing slowly towards the door. One of the things you learn after years of dealing with drug people is that everything is serious. You can turn your back on a person, but you never turn your back on a drug especially when it's waving a razor-sharp hunting knife in your eyes. Take a shower, I said. I'll be back in 20 minutes. I left quickly, locking the door behind me and taking the keys to Lacerda's room, the one my attorney had stolen earlier. That poor geek, I thought. As I hurried down the escalator, they sent him out here on this perfectly reasonable assignment. Just a few, fo just a few photos of motorcycles and dune buggies racing around the desert. And now he was plunged without realizing it, into the maw of some world beyond his kin. There was no way he could possibly understand what was happening. What were you doing out here? What was the meaning of this trip? Did I actually have a big red convertible out there on the street? Was I just roaming around these mint hotels, escalators, in a drug frenzy of some kind? 
or had I really come out to Las Vegas to work on a story? I reached into my pocket for the room key. 1850, it said. At least that much was real. So my immediate task was to deal with the car and get back to the room, and then hopefully get straight enough to cope with whatever might happen at dawn. Now off the escalator and into the casino, big crowds still tight around the crap tables. Who are these people? These faces? Where did they come from? They look like characters, caricatures of used car dealers from Dallas, but they're real. And sweet Jesus, there are a hell of a lot of them still screaming around these desert city crap tables at 4.30 on a Sunday morning. Still humping the American dream. That vision of the big winner somehow emerging from the last minute pre-dawn chaos of a stale Vegas casino. Big strike in Silver City. Beat the dealer and go home rich. Why not? I stopped at the money wheel and dropped a dollar on Thomas Jefferson. A two dollar bill. The straight freak ticket thinking as always that some idle instinct. Bet. Might carry the whole thing off. But no. Just another two bucks down the tubes. You bastards. No. Calm down. Learn to enjoy losing. The important thing is to cover the story on its own terms. Leave the other stuff to life and look. At least for now. On the way down the escalator, I saw the life man twisted feverishly into the telegraph booth. Chanting his wisdom into the ear of some horny robot and a cubicle on that other coast. Indeed, Las Vegas at dawn, the racers are still asleep, the dust is still on the desert, $50,000 in prize money slumbers darkly in the office safe at Dell Webb's fabulous Mint Hotel in the bright heart of Casino Center. Extreme tension. And our life team is here, as always, with sturdy police escort. Pause. Yes, operator, that word was police. What else? This is, after all, a life special. The Red Shark was out on Fremont where I'd left it. I drove around the garage and checked it in. Dr. Gonzo's car, no problem. And if any of your men fall out, we can use a total whack job, wax job before morning. Yes, of course, just build the room. My attorney was in the bathtub when I returned. Oh, boy. Submerged in green water. The woolly product of some Japanese bath salts he'd picked up the hotel gift shop, along with a new AM-FM radio plugged into the electric razor socket. At top volume. Some gibberish by a thing called Three Dog Night about a frog named Jeremiah who wanted joy to the world. First linen, now this, I thought. Next, we'll have Glenn Campbell screaming, Where have all the flowers gone? Where, indeed, no flowers in this town. Only carnivorous plants. I turned the volume down and noticed a hunk of chewed-up white paper beside the radio. My attorney seemed not to notice the sound change. He was lost in a fog of green steam. Only half his head was visible, <laughs> Only half his head was visible above the waterline. You ate this, I asked, holding up the white pad. He ignored me, but I knew. He would be very difficult to reach for the next six hours. 
The whole blotter was chewed up. You evil son of a bitch, I said. You better hope there's some Thorazine in that bag, because if there's not, you're in bad trouble tomorrow. Music, he snarled. Turn it up with the tape on. What tape? The new one. It's right there. I picked up the radio and noticed that it was also a tape recorder. One of those things with a cassette unit built in. And the tape, surrealistic pillow, needed only to be flipped over. He had already gone through side one at a volume that must have been audible in every room within a radius of 100 yards, walls and all. What rabbit, he said. I want a rising sound. You're doomed, I said. I'm leaving you here in two hours, and then they're going to come up here and they're going to beat the mortal shit out of you with big saps right there in the tub. I dig my own graves, he said. Green water and the white rabbit, put it on. Don't make me use this. His arm lashed out of the water, the hunting knife gripped in his fist. Jesus, I muttered. And at that point, I figured he was beyond help. Lying there in the tub with a head full of acid and the sharpest knife I've ever seen, totally incapable of reason, demanding the white rabbit. This is it, I thought. I've gone as far as I can with this waterhead. <laughs> oh boy, waterhead. This time it was a suicide trip. This time he wants it. He's ready. Okay, I said, turning the tape over and pushing the play button. But do me one last favor, will you? Can you give me two hours? That's all I ask. Just two hours of sleep before tomorrow. I suspect, I suspect it's going to be a very difficult day. Of course, he said. I'm your attorney. I'll give you all the time you need. At my normal rates, $45 an hour, but you'll be wanting a cushion. So why don't you just lay one of those $100 bills down there beside the radio and fuck off? How about a check, I said, on the Solitude National Bank. You won't need any idea to ca ID to cash it there. They know me. Whatever's right, he said, beginning to jerk with the music. The bathroom was like the inside of a huge, defective woofer. Heinous vibrations, overwhelming sound. The floor was full of water. I moved the radio as far from the tub as I could get it. Then I left and closed the door behind me. Within seconds, he was shouting at me, Help, you bastard! I need help! I rushed back inside, thinking he'd sliced off an ear by accident. But no, he was reaching across the bathroom towards the white formica shelf where the radio set. I want that fucking radio, he snarled. I grabbed it away from his hands. You fool, I said. Get back in the tub. Get away from the goddamn radio. I shoved it back. From his hand, the volume was so far up that it was hard to hard to know what was playing unless you knew surrealistic pillow almost note for note, which I did at the time, so I knew that White Rabbit had finished. The peak had come and gone. Oh, goddamn, Zach. Quit promising things. But my attorney, it seemed, had not made it. He wanted more. Back to take, puppy, he yelled. I need it again. His eyes were full of craziness now, unable to focus. He seemed on the verge of some awful psychic orgasm. Let it roll, he screamed. Just as high as the fucker can go. 
And when it comes to that fantastic note where the rabbit bites its own head off, I want you to throw the fucking radio into the tub with me. I stared at him, keeping a firm grip on the radio. Not me, I said finally. I'd be happy to ram a goddamn 440-volt cattle prod into that tub with you right now, but not this radio. It would bless you right through the wall. Stone dead in ten seconds, I laughed. Shit, they'd make me explain it. Drag me down to some rotten coroner's inquest and grill me about it. Yes, the exact details. I don't need that. Bullshit, he screamed. Just tell them I wanted to get higher. I thought for a moment, okay, I said finally. You're right. This is probably the only solution. I picked up the tape radio, which was still plugged in, and held it over the tub. Just let me make sure I have it all lined up, I said. You want me to throw this thing in the tub when Watt Rabbit peaks? Is that it? He fell back in the water and smiled gratefully. Fuck yes, he said. I was beginning to think I was going to have to go out and get some of those goddamn maids to do it. Don't worry, I said. Are you ready? I hit the play button and Watt Rabbit started building again. Almost immediately, he began to howl and moan. Another fast run up that mountain, and then thinking this time that he'd finally get over the top. His eyes were gripped shut, and only his head and both kneecaps poked out from the oily green water. I let the song build while I sorted through the pile of fat, ripe grapefruits next to the basin. The biggest one of the lot weighed almost two pounds. I got a good Vita Blue fastball grip on the fucker, and... Just as White Rabbit peaked, I lashed it in the tub like a cannonball. My attorney screamed crazily, thrashing around the tub like a shark after meat, churning water all over the floor as he struggled to get a hold of something. I jerked the AC cord out of the tape radio and moved out of the bathroom very quickly. The machine kept on playing, but now it was back and on its own harmless battery power. I could hear the beat cooling down as I moved across the room to my net bag, or my kit bag, and fetched, fetched up the mace can. Just as my attorney ripped the bathroom door open and startled out, his eyes were still unfocused, but he was waving the blade around in front of him like a man who meant to cut something. Mace, I shouted. You want this? I waved the mace bomb in front of his watery eyes. He stopped. You bastard, he hissed. You'd do that, wouldn't you? I laughed, still waving the bomb at him. Why worry? You'll like it. Shit, there's some. There's nothing in the world like a mace high. 45 minutes on your knees with the dry heaves gasping for breath. It'll calm you right down. He stared in my general direction, trying to focus. You cheap, honky son of a bitch, he muttered. You'd do that, wouldn't you? Why not, I said. Hell, just a minute ago, you were asking me to kill you. And now you want to kill me? What should I, go what should I do, goddammit? Should I call the police? He sagged. The cops! I nodded. Yeah, there's no choice. I wouldn't dare go to sleep with you wandering around in this condition with a head full of acid and wanting to slice me up like with that goddamn knife. He rolled his eyes for a moment and then tried to smile. Who said anything about slicing you up, he mumbled. I just wanted to carve a little Z on your forehead. Nothing serious. 
He shrugged and reached for a cigarette on top of the TV set. I menaced him again with the mace can. Get back in the tub, I said. Eat some reds and try to calm down. Smoke some grass. Shoot some smack. Shit. Do whatever you have to. But let me get some rest. He shrugged and smiled distractedly, as if everything I'd said made perfect sense. Oh, yes, he said, very earnestly. You really need to get some sleep. You have to work tomorrow. He shook his head sadly and turned back towards the bathroom. God damn, what a bummer. He waved me off. Try to rest, he said. Don't let me keep you up. I nodded and watched him shuffle back in the bathroom, still holding the blade, but now he seemed unaware of it. The acid, the acid had shifted gears on him. The next phase would probably be one of those hellishly intense introspection nightmares. Four hours or so of the catatonic despair. But nothing physical, nothing dangerous. I watched the door close behind him, and I quietly slid a heavy, sharp-angled chair up to the front of the bathroom knob and put the mace can beside the alarm clock. The room was very quiet. I walked over to the TV set, it, TV set and turned it on to a dead channel. White noise at maximal decibels. A fine sound for sleeping. A powerful, continuous hiss to drown out everything strange. Okay, part one, chapter eight. Genius round the world stands hand in hand, and one shock of the recognition runs the whole circle round. Art, art link letter. I live in a quiet place where any sound at night means something is about to happen. You come awake fast, thinking, what does that mean? Usually nothing. But sometimes it's hard to adjust to a city gig where the night is full of sounds, all of them discomfortably routine. Cars, horns, footsteps, no way to relax. So drown it all out with the fine white drone of a cross-eyed TV set. Jam the bugger between channels and doze off nicely. Ignore that nighttime in the bath that nightmare in the bathroom, just another ugly refugee from the love generation, some doomstruck gimp who couldn't handle the pressure. My attorney has never been able to accept the notion, often espoused by reformed drug abusers and especially popular among those on probation, that you can get a lot higher without drugs than with them. And neither have I, for that matter. But I once lived down the hill from Dr. Blank on Blank Road, names deleted at insistence of the publisher's lawyer, a former acid guru who later claimed to have made the long jump from chemical frenzy to preternatural consciousness. One fine afternoon in the first rising curl of what would soon become the great San Francisco acid wave, I stopped by the good doctor's house with the idea of asking him, since he was even then a known drug authority, what sort of advice he might have for a neighbor with a healthy curiosity about LSD. I parked on the road and lumbered up his gravel driveway. 
pausing en route to wave pleasantly at his wife, who was working the garden under the brim of a huge seating hat. A good scene, I thought. The old man is inside brewing up one of his fantastic drug stews, and here we see his woman out in the garden, pruning carrots or whatever, humming while she works. Some tune I failed to recognize. Humming. Yes. But it would be nearly ten years before I would recognize that sound for what it was. Like Ginsberg, far gone in the arm, blank, was trying to hum me off. There was no old lady out there in the garden. It was the good doctor himself, and his humming was a frantic attempt to block me out of his higher consciousness. I made several attempts to make myself clear. Just a neighbor come to call and asked the doctor's advice about gobbling some LSD in my shack just down the hill from the house. I did it after all have weapons, and I like to shoot them, especially at night when the great blue flame would leap out along with that no- all that noise. And yes, the bullets too. We couldn't ignore that. Big balls of lead alloy flying around the valley at speeds up to 3,700 feet per second but always fired into the nearest hill or failing that into blackness. I mean no harm. I just liked the explosions, and I was careful never to kill more than I could eat. Kill? I realized I could never properly properly explain that word to this creature toiling here in the garden. Had it ever eaten meat? Could it conjugate the verb hunt? Did it understand hunger or grasp the awful the awful fact that my income averaged around $32 a week that year. No, no hope of communication in this place. I recognized that, but not soon after, but not soon enough to keep the drug doctor from humming me all the way down his driveway and into my car and down the mountain road. Forget LSD, I thought. Look what it's done to that poor bastard. So I stuck with hash and rum for another six months or so until I moved into San Francisco and found myself one night in a place called the Fillmore Auditorium. And that was that. One gray lump of sugar and boom in my mind. Right back there in the doctor's garden. Not on the surface, but underneath poking up through that finely cultivated earth like some kind of mutant mushroom, a victim of the drug explosion, a natural street freak, just eating whatever came by. I recall one night in the Matrix when a road person came in with a big pack of, big pack on his back shouting, Anybody want some LSD? I got all the makings right here. All I need is a place to cook. The manager was on him at once, mumbling, Cool it! Cool it! Come on back to the office. I never saw him after that night, but before he was taken away, the road person distributed his samples. Huge white spansels. I went into the men's room to eat mine. But only half at first, I thought. Good thinking, but a hard thing to accomplish under the circumstances. I ate the first half, but spilled the rest of my sleeve of my red Pendleton shirt. And then wondering what to do with it, I saw one of the musicians come in. 
What's the trouble, he said. Well, I said, all this white stuff on my sleeve is LSD. He said nothing, merely grabbed my arm and began sucking on it. A very gross tableau. I wondered what would happen if some Kingston Trio young stockbroker type might wander in and catch us in the act. Fuck him, I thought. With a bit of luck, it'll ruin his life, forever thinking that just behind some narrow door and all his favorite bars, men in red Pendleton shirts are getting incredible kicks from things he'll never know. Would he dare to suck a sleeve? Probably not. Play it safe. Pretend you never saw it. Strange memories of this nervous night in Las Vegas five years later, six. It seemed like a lifetime, or at least a main era. The kind of peak that never comes again. San Francisco in the middle of the 60s was a very special time and a place to be part of. Maybe it meant something. Maybe not in the long run, but no explanation, no mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of time and the world, whatever it meant. History is hard to know because all the hired bullshit, but even without being sure of history, it seems entirely reasonable to think that every now and then the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long, fine flash for reasons that nobody really understands at the time, and which never can explain in retrospect what actually happened. My central memory of that time seems to hang on one or five or maybe 40 nights or very early mornings when I left the Fillmore half crazy, and instead of going home, aimed the big 650 lightning across the Bay Bridge at 100 miles an hour, wearing L.L. Bean shorts and a Butte Butte Sheep Herder's jacket, booming through the the Treasure Island Tunnel at the lights of Oakland and Berkeley and Richmond, not quite sure which turn off to take when I got to the other end, always stalling at the toll gate, too twisted to find neutral while I fumbled for change. But being absolutely certain that no matter which way I went, I would come to a place where people were just as high and wild as I was. No doubt about all that. There was madness in any direction, at any hour. If not across the bay, then up the Golden Gate or down 101 to Los Angeles. Altos or La Honda. You could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universe, universal sense that whatever we were doing was right and that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting on our side or theirs. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and a beautiful wave. So now, less than five la- five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west, and with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. 
I apologize for my very clumsy reading, but this shit isn't audible, and I'm not going to edit anything. You're going to hear all the flubs I make, and, oh shit, I, the fucking brain damage has started to take hold. Um, Some of the medications I take make me forget full-on words, but bear with me if you want to hear this old book, if anybody's listening by now. Just bear with me. Part one, chapter nine. <clears throat> no sympathy for the devil. Newsmen tortured, flight into madness. The decision to flee came suddenly, or maybe not. Maybe I'd planned it all along. Subconsciously waiting for the right moment. The bill was a factor, I think, because I had no money to pay it. And no more of these devilish credit card reimbursement deals. Not after dealing with the Sydney Zion. They seized my American Express card after that one. And now the bastards are suing me. Along with the Donners Club and the IRS. And besides, the magazine is legally responsible. My attorney saw to that. We signed nothing. Except those room service tabs. We never knew the total, but just before we left, my attorney figured we were running somewhere between 29 and $36 per hour for 48 consecutive hours. Incredible, I said. How could this happen? But by the time I asked the question, there was nobody around to answer. My attorney was gone. He must have sensed trouble. On Monday evening, he ordered up a set of fine cowhide luggage from room service then told me he had reservations on the next plane for L.A. We would have to hurry, he said, and on the way to the airport, he borrowed $25 for the plane ticket. $25 for a plane ticket? I saw him off. Then I went back to the airport souvenir counter and spent all the rest of the cash on garbage, complete shit, souvenirs of Las Vegas, fake Plastic fake Zippo lighters with built-in roulette wheel for six ninety five, JFK half dollar money clips for five dollars each. Ten apes that shook dice for seven fifty. I loaded up on this crap, then carried it out to the Great Red Shark and dumped it all in the back seat. And then I stepped into the driver's seat in a very dignified way. The white top was rolled back as always and I sat there and turned the radio on to begin thinking how would Horatio Alger handle this situation one toke over the line sweet Jesus one toke over the line panic it crept up my spine like the first rising vibes of an acid frenzy all these horrible re realities began to dawn on me here was all alone in Las Vegas with this goddamn incredibly expensive car, completely twisted on drugs, no attorney, no cash, no story for the magazine. And on top of everything else, I had a gigantic goddamn hotel bill to deal with. We had ordered everything in that room that human hands could carry, including about 600 bars of translucent Neutrogena soap. The whole car was full of it, 
all of the floors, the seats, the glove compartment, my attorney had worked out some kind of arrangement with the mestizo, mestizo maids on our floor to have this soap delivered to us. 600 bars of this weird, transparent shit. And now it was all mine. Along with the plastic briefcase that I suddenly noticed right beside me on the front seat, I lifted the fucker and knew immediately what was inside. No Samoan attorney in his right mind is going to stomp through the metal detector gates of a commercial airline with a fat black 300, 357 Magnum on his person. So he'd left it with me for delivery if I made it back to L.A. otherwise. Well, I could almost hear myself talking to the California Highway Patrol. What? This weapon? This loaded, unregistered, concealed, and maybe hot 357 Magnum? What am I doing with it? Well, you see, officer, I pulled off the road near Mescal Springs on the advice of my attorney, who subsequently disappeared, and all of a sudden, while I was in the sort of walking around deserted waterhole by myself for no reason, no reason at all, when this little fellow with a beard came up to me out of nowhere, and he had this horrible linoleum knife in one hand and this huge black pistol in the other hand, and he offered to carve a big X on my forehead in memory of Lieutenant Callie. Well, when I told him I was a doctor of journalism, his whole attitude changed. Yes, you probably won't believe this, officer, but he suddenly hurled that knife into the brackish mescal waters near our feet, and then he gave me this revolver. All right. He just shoved it in my hands, but first, then he ran off into the darkness. So that's why I have this weapon, officer. Can you believe that? No. But I wasn't about to throw the bastard away either. A good three fifty-seven is hard a hard thing to get these days. So I figured, well, just get this bugger back to Malibu and it's mine. My risk, my gun, it made perfect sense. And if that Samoan pig wanted to argue, if he wanted to come yelling around the house, give him a taste of the bugger about midway up the femur. Indeed. 158 grains of half-jacketed lead alloy traveling 1,500 feet per second equals about 40 pounds of Samoan hamburger mixed up with bone splinters. Why not? Madness. Madness. And meanwhile, all alone with the great red shark in the parking lot of the Las Vegas airport, hell with this panic. Get a grip. Maintain. For the next 24 hours, this matter of personal control will be critical. Here I am sitting out here alone in this fucking desert and the nest of armed loonies with very dangerous carload of hazards, horrors, and liabilities that I must get back to L.A. Because if they nail me out here, I'm doomed. Completely fucked. No question about that. No future for the doctor of journalism editing the state pen weekly. Better to get the hell out of this atavistic state at high speed. Right. But first, back to the Mint Hotel and cash a $50 check, then up to the room and call down for two club sandwiches. Two club sandwiches, milk, a pot of coffee, and a fifth of Bacardi and Ejo. Rum will be absolutely necessary to get through this night to polish these notes, this shameful diary. Keep the tape machine screaming all night long at top volume. Allow me to induce myself 
I'm a man of wealth and taste. Sympathy? Not for me. No mercy for the criminal freak in Las Vegas. This place is like the army. The shark ethic prevails. Eat the wounded. In a closed society where everybody's guilty. The only crime is getting caught. In a world of thieves, the only final sin is stupidity. It is a weird feeling to sit in Las Vegas hotel at four in the morning, hunkered down with a notebook and tape recorder and a $75 a day suite and a fantastic room service bill run up to 48 hours of total madness. Knowing that, just as soon as dawn comes, you're going to flee without paying a fucking penny. Go stomping out through the lobby and call your red convertible down from the garage and stand there waiting for it with a suitcase full of marijuana and illegal weapons. Trying to look casual, scanning the first morning edition of the Las Vegas Sun, this was the final step. I had taken all the grapefruit and other luggage out to the car a few hours earlier. That was only a matter of slipping the noose. Yes, extremely casual behavior. Wild, wild eyes hidden behind these Saigon mirror sunglasses. Waiting for the shark to roll up. Where is it? I gave that evil pimp of a car boy $5. A prime investment right now. Stay calm. Keep reading the paper. The lead story was the screaming blue headline across the top of the page. Trio rearrested in beauty's death. An overdose of heroin was listed as the official cause of death for pretty Diane Hamby, 19, whose body was found stuffed into a refrigerator last week, according to the Clark County's coroner's office. Investigations of the sheriff's homicide team who went to arrest the suspect said that one, a 24-year-old woman, attempted to fling herself through the glass door of her trailer before being stopped by deputies. Officers said that she was apparently hysterical and shouted, You'll never take me alive! But officers handcuffed the woman and she apparently was not injured. GI drug deaths claimed. Washington Associated Post. A House subcommittee reports says that illegal drugs killed 160 American GIs last year. 40 of them in Vietnam. Drugs were suspected, it said, and another 56 military deaths in Asia and the Pacific Command. It said the heroin problem in Vietnam is increasing in seriousness, primarily because the processing laboratories in Laos, Thailand, and Hong Kong. Drug suppression in Vietnam is almost completely ineffective, the report said partially because of an ineffective local police force and partially because of some presently unknown corrupt officials and public office involved in the drug traffic. To the left of that grim notice was a four-column center page photo of Washington, D.C. Cops fighting with young anti-war demonstrators who staged a sit-in and blocked the entrance to Selective Service Headquarters. And next to the photo was a large black headline, Torture Tales of War Hearings. Washington. Volunteer witness told an informal congressional panel yesterday that while serving as a military interrogator, they routinely, they routinely used electric 
telephone hookups and helicopter drops to torture and kill Vietnamese prisoners. One Army intelligence specialist said the pistol slaying of the Chinese interpreter was defended by a superior who said she was just a slope anyway, meaning she was Asiatic. Right underneath that story was a headline saying five wounded near NYC tenement by an unidentified gunman who fired from the roof of building for no apparent reason. This item appeared just above the headline that said pharmacy owner arrested in prone. A result, the the article explained, of a preliminary investigation of a Las Vegas pharmacy showing a shortage of 100,000 pills considered dangerous drugs. Reading the front page made me feel a lot better. Against that heinous background, my crimes were pale and meaningless. I was relatively a respectable citizen. A multiple felon, perhaps, but certainly not dangerous. And when the great scorer came to write against my name, that would surely make the difference. Or would it? I turned to the Swartz page and saw a small item about Muhammad Ali. His case was before the Supreme Court. The final appeal, he'd been sentenced to five years in prison for refusing to kill Slopes. I ain't got nothing against the Viet Congs, he said. Five years. Okay, that's another three chapters. Uh, I don't know where I'm going to fit in everything else. Oh, boy. Might have to do an independent thing this weekend. I'll have help. I'm held up by my girlfriend at times. And now she helps me with research, so I'm not just driving myself crazy with all this downer shit all the time and trying to make it funny. But that will be my task whenever we get to the horrible histories. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed me reading this. If anybody's listening to this, I thank you very much. But that's it for this reading. Look for more or later this week, I guess. Bye.